I had a guru in India tell me that Judaism was the highest spiritual path in the world and the hardest to see the spirituality in and that I should somehow learn what it means to be a Jew. Hello there, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you have been listening to Human and Holy and appreciate the work that we do, can I ask you to do us a quick favor? Leave us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the follow button. That will ensure that you don't miss a single episode. Episodes come out every Sunday morning. And when you rate or review the podcast, it helps other people find our work. So take a quick second before we continue on to today's episode, hit the follow button, leave a quick rating, leave a review, and yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for being here. Today's episode is sponsored Le'ilor Nishmas Yaakov Yosef Ben Avram Akiva Halevi. Yaakov Yosef lived a life of chesed, and he constantly was giving to others. He was an optimist who always saw the glass at least half full. Being besimcha was his trademark. He had tremendous respect for Rabbanim and loved all his fellow Jews of all stripes and affiliations. Thank you for sponsoring today's episode in his honor, and may the neshama of Yaakov Yosef ben Avram Akiva Halevi have an aliyah. If you are listening to this and would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. Human and Holy is a 501c3. We are a nonprofit and all donations to Human and Holy are tax deductible. Thank you so much to all of our sponsors, past and present, for making each episode happen and for bringing Human and Holy into the world every single week. With us today, we have Olivia Schwartz, who if you know her, then you know that she's an absolute legend. Olivia has had a fascinating life journey, and I'm excited to be sharing a snippet of it here. I was taken by Olivia's spirit the first time that I met her years ago in Svat one summer and was just amazed by her approach to life and to her Judaism. Today, she talks about being tuned in to God's synchronicity, to Hashkacha Pratis, to the details of our lives that are always being guided by God's hands. What does it mean to be truly open and curious to the world around us so that we can make space to hear God's gentle hellos? You are someone who I have admired for a very long time. You don't know me, but I know you. <laughs> I've heard you speak a couple of times and just watching you move through the world in spot online, like whenever I had any interactions with you, like a one-sided interaction. Right. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) But I'm so amazed by your spirit, your free spiritedness, your individuality, your connection to your Yiddishkeit. Actually, recently on Pesach, someone asked a prompt at the table and they said, if you could think of a person that embodies freedom, who would you think of? And I said your name. And I was like, I don't really really know her so well, but something about you just embodies freedom to me. Yeah. That's so interesting. Somebody had that comment to me this morning when I dropped my grandson off at preschool about something I was going to be doing here in Nashville. And they went, we need that spirit here. Yeah. (laughs) You have an amazing spirit. And I'm so excited to share it with people today. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Okay. So my name is Olivia Schwartz and I am from Los Angeles recently, like the last... 50 years. (laughs) And my husband was Rabbi Shlomo Schwartz, who passed away six years ago. 
And he, along with Rabbi Stillman and Rocky Stillman and mm. other rabbis, created the first Chabad house anywhere in the world. Now wow. there are thousands, but they created the first Chabad house and then opened up the next two. So we were on a groundbreaking kind of path in how you present Yiddishkeit to college students, basically. We were at UCLA College campus and a few other campuses. So everything we did was innovative and creative, every single thing. And many of it was through letters with the Rebbe, you know, people who had an openness also of freedom and a spirit and an openness, really. And everything was created to be successful. And it was extremely successful, extremely successful. And then we went on to create another organization called the High Center, which my husband and I ran alone, basically then with our son Mation, with our son Mendel. And it was a center to teach and attract Jews that have no connection with Judaism. So I've been doing this for many, many years. I've been cooking for thousands. Many, many different things happened for us, you know, many different things, all a blessing. We went, you know, in the old days, we used to go to concerts or like the movie line in Westwood, California, when they were showing movies and, you know, everybody there's Jewish and we'd hand out flyers, you know, we'd hand out flyers, you know, we'd have our kids come with us Saturday night to the big parking lots for all the malls and stuff. And one kid would watch for the police and the other, we'd run around putting flyers on cars. You know, everything was in that time so hands-on. So I guess I'm not afraid to be hands-on for anything because that's the way it was and that's the way we ran our organizations. And we were very fortunate that we were asked to be scholars in residence in SPOT at Ascent Institute, which is absolutely amazing, run by Rabbi Shul Leiter and Chaya Brocha Leiter and Yerachmiel and Shulamis Tillis. And we were there together. My husband and I were there for 25 summers, and I've continued that. So this summer will be my 31st or my 32nd summer. And we teach and we live in Sfad and we breathe the air. And I teach meditation and yoga there, as well as Klesidis. It's just very beautiful. My husband used to call it shooting fish in a barrel because when you're breathing the air of Eretz Israel and you're breathing the air of Sfat and you're sitting on the porch of Ascent and you're looking at Mount Moron and you're hearing words of Torah, hearts just ran to be connected. So that's what I do in the summers in Israel. I also snorkel, but <laughs> highly recommend it in a lot. Some of the best in the world. So I spend a week every summer there. And I have a kolel in my mother's name in Hebron at the kever of Rebetzin Menucha Rachel. My mother passed away maybe 20 years ago, and we have a woman's learning kolel there for all this time. And I'm very committed to Hebron. We do many things there. And that's my life, really. I have a lot of kids, Baruch Hashem. We have a lot of grandkids, a lot of great grandkids. I'm in Nashville because my daughter had a baby. It's one of the things I do is that I go help take care of the new babies and help the mothers of my daughters and daughter-in-laws and Baruch Hashem. As I say to people, I don't do anything I don't enjoy doing. Okay, so I love it. And I'm involved with many different projects. I wrote a book that I finished writing and now I'm doing the second draft. What's it about? It's about, well, my intention. Okay, we don't know how it's going to end up. But my intention is that it's about spiritual transformation. So I lived in India for many, many years. And then I went from India to Israel. And I'm from a reform background. And it's a long story. <laughs> Tell us a version of it. The version of it is I always wanted to have a connection with God. And I did not think it existed in Judaism. I went to Sunday school from the time I was three till 12th grade in high school. Mm. So I was involved. I was educated. But it was what it was. It was not a holy experience. And I 
spent summers up in the Yosemite Mountains being a camp counselor for the reform movement. And it's there that I really encountered that feeling of God and wanting to look further for it. And so I ended up in India after graduate school. I had gone to Israel. I was in Israel in 1968, and I really disliked being there, (laughs) although I was there for quite a few months. I mean, there were things about it that were nice, but I can't say that there was anything I loved about it. And just the very short version is that I had a guru in India tell me that Judaism was the highest spiritual path in the world and the hardest to see the spirituality in, and that I should somehow learn what it means to be a Jew. And that's basically my India story. And then when I first arrived in Israel, again, because I thought I was going to go to Israel for one month, learn everything there was to learn about Judaism, and then come back to India. I mean, that was actually my intention. I had a round-trip ticket. What happened in Israel in that one month? What really happened, in short, is from living in India, it really is a theme of Hashgaka Pratis, actually. From living in India, I came to really understand and believe there are no accidents, that everything is meant to be. So that if I was supposed to be a Tibetan Buddhist or whatever, I would have been born that way. And that really was the deciding factor in me staying in Israel and then growing to absolutely love every second, every breath in Israel. And that's basically what my book is about, ending up so far. I mean, that it either is going to end before that, but the ending will be my meeting the Rebbe, my experience with the Rebbe. And it was actually this week by Hershkaka Pratis. It was at the Women's Convention. Tell us. So I went to a yeshiva called Diaspora Yeshiva, and Rabbi Goldstein was Mrs. Sybil Gitlin's brother. And he was the Rosh Hashiv. And for anyone who doesn't know, Mrs. Gitlin is one of the women that used to stand by the Rebbe when he'd give out dollars or kontrasim or whatever. And so when I was going to Crown Heights, he said, because I had friends there, I was visiting my parents in Queens, and I came for a few weeks, and I was going for only for Shabbos. I wasn't, I wasn't staying. So he said, meet my sister. So Mrs. Gitlin on Shabbos, you know, she pushed me into the front row so I could see the Rebbe. And then on Sunday, the Rebbe spoke to women. It was one of the three times a year that the Rebbe spoke to women. And if you were an out-of-town guest, you can get on a list and you could go by the Rebbe. And basically, Mrs. Gitlin put myself and three other women that were there with me from our yeshiva on the list, and we were able to go to the Rebbe. And for each one of us, it was life-changing. What happened? What did the Rebbe tell you? What was your your experience? What was your interaction? Well, my experience was actually similar to an experience I had in India. So I think that was a way I could recognize the power or acknowledge the power of what was happening because Mrs. Gitlin said, you just can hand it settle. No one can speak to the Rebbe. So one of the four women with me, one of my friends, three of us were Bali Jew, for the rest, she was from a Gera Hasidic family. And she said when Mrs. Gitlin walked away, no, if you have an opportunity to talk to a Rebbe, you always talk to a Rebbe. Don't miss the opportunity to talk to the Rebbe. So since I had no idea who the Rebbe was or what a Rebbe was, and I didn't have that level of reverence or respect, I said, okay, I'll think of a question to ask the Rebbe. And so I had been studying with the head of the Breslov movement, Rev Gedalia Koenig in Yerushalayim with a group of women. Um, it was all in Hebrew. I really understood nothing, but I really liked being in that atmosphere. And somebody translated after. And he always was talking about complete tshuva. So I was from, by the time I came to the Rebbe, four years already. I had become from at the yeshiva in Yerushalayim. I had lived in Yerushalayim. So I asked the Rebbe 
what was complete tshuva. And the Rebbe said, I believe there's a Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law, in English. You should learn it every day and come to do tshuva with joy and inspiration. And that was it. (laughs) But the experience that I had before going to the Rebbe, when I was standing in that line, as the women lined up in front of the Rebbe, was an experience that I had in India. And it was an experience that my husband had when the first time he went to the Rebbe, also not knowing who the Rebbe was. And I just felt the whole area around me become totally silent. Like you could hear the silence. Now you could see the 5,000 women that were sitting talking. You could see their mouth. They were talking. Everybody was talking because that now there are people going... And it was like I was in a bubble of silence. And so that energy or atmosphere or receptivity was already around me by the time I stood in front of the Rebbe. That's such an interesting way of describing it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my real spiritual journey, even though you could say I was on a spiritual journey since the time I was a child, because... I used to be jealous of Christian children when I'd see them in the movies, that they could kneel by their beds and they fold their cute little hands and they have, you know, a prayer that they say. Like I was always looking. In college, those were great years for looking, finding God. Just open to seeing an inner teaching in the world and then wanting to know how you could keep it, how you could hold it, how it could be part of your really everyday life. Have you been able to perpetuate that seeking energy once you came to the realization that Yiddishkeit was the path for you and that because you were born a Jew, this was your path to God and your path to spirituality? It was really only from the moment of meeting the Rebbe that I understood it on that level, that I was happy about it. You know, before that, when I became religious in Israel and was connected to diaspora yeshiva, you know, I love my life. I love things I did. I love Shabbos and I love the camaraderie. We had, you know, big balava malkas and a lot of music. And Rabbi Goldstein was an incredibly open person. And so everything in Yiddishkeit was bringing it to the holiest level, but recognizing people's inner talents and capabilities. And that was very rare. So that was my experience. But there was not that level of spirituality that I felt in India. It just was absolutely not present. But I really felt that this is my spiritual path. And I have a friend, she's no longer alive, but she was in it. It's a long story with her, but she begged me. She flew in from Minnesota with a ticket in her hand after she'd been studying at the women's yeshiva there. I was visiting my parents for two weeks. She had a plane ticket for me to come back with her to learn Hasidus. And she begged me to come learn Hasidus because she had been in India. She said, it's everything you learned in India. Because she understood that was missing from what we were studying or what we were learning. And I wouldn't go because there was a lot of anti-Hasidic undertonings, not anti in terms of hateful, but anti in terms of that is not the path Mm. that you should be going on or studying. You know, it was not negative towards the people. It was never negative towards the rabbi, none of that. But it was just, that's a path you don't want to touch. It's not for you. Okay. So meeting the rabbi opened up the world of everything. Hasidus, we're talking about Hashgacha practice only through Hasidus. I never saw it before. You know, I never recognized it as a way to serve God also. So it was a very big deal. (laughs) You mentioned how a turning point for you was the realization that if you were meant to be serving a certain religion, you would have been born into that religion. So Mm -hmm. clearly you had been born a Jew. So therefore the Jewish path was yours. And when you were speaking with me about what idea has been a guiding force in your life. You said that Hashkacha Pratis is something that has shaped you. 
And before we get into a little bit about what your experience has been with Ashkocha Pratis, can you tell us what your understanding of the idea is, how you define it in your own mind? I'll first tell you how my husband defined it. Okay. <laughs> my husband defined it as synchronicity. And in mm. our dining room where we used to have hundreds of people, he had a big photograph of a whale jumping up in the air with the water splashing and the word synchronicity. So that was my first way to verbalize it. That was my first verbalization. But I do feel like when I see these things and it's I synchronicity, I don't use the word. I use Hushkacha process. That this is exactly the way something is supposed to be. This is the divinely appointed way that this was supposed to happen. And I guess the one thing is that I do have an ability to see the Hashkacha process in almost everything, you know, how it comes. And people always say like, you have such great stories. How come they don't happen to me? And I go, no, no, they all happen to you. You just don't see it. And I just find it so enriching. I find it enriches that understanding of godliness in the world and, you know, our making our connection and being excited about it. I think it's the things that are exciting. Like I do a lot of teaching and I do do a lot of storytelling in my teaching. I think you want things to solidify in a person's inner being, in their heart, really. And I think the gift of Hasidus to me was to understand that the intellectual study needs to stir, ignite the heart. And then the heart goes back and ignites the intellect, like in a spiral. And I feel that telling stories that have the hand of God in it, that when you point it out to people, they can see it. You know, maybe when it happens to them, they don't put it together, but they happen all the time. And so I just feel that in a class, the way you want to connect, first of all, you want to connect to everybody's in the class. And I now have a new experience of teaching on Facebook since the pandemic, that I never, ever did anything like that before. That was the only skill I had. That's the only thing I knew how to do is <laughs> go on Facebook <laughs> live. <laughs> and even though you're not with people, I know, whether it's energetically or however, that when I tell a story, people are connected. Mm -hmm. I can feel it through the screen, so to speak. And when you lecture, it's interesting and you're thinking about it, or it's too whatever, and it's okay, but stories have an imprint, in my opinion. Give us an example of a situation where you were really able to feel Hashem's presence in your life because of that belief that he's involved in even the smallest details. Okay, so this is interesting. I haven't thought of this particular person or thing in a long time. So when I first started, I have a master's in education from San Jose State University up in San Jose. I lived in Northern California. And I was only used to teaching little kids. I never taught adults. My husband was a teacher. My husband was an incredible teacher. He was the speaker. I mean, I certainly was vocal, but I had a lot of kids and I did a lot of interacting. I was very in involved. I was on the board of the first Jewish Feminist Center in Los Angeles which was all Reform and Orthodox, Reform and Conservative rabbis and me. And I did it for an entry into the different communities. And I formed lifetime friendships. But it was more through speaking, not through teaching. It wasn't through teaching. So I wasn't a very experienced teacher. And because I don't have a 40-year Torah education, even though I have a lot of self-confidence, it was not easy for me to teach, to start to teach. So I was teaching a class of Hollywood. We were very involved for a certain period of time with Hollywood, people in Hollywood, the music industry, because it's Los Angeles. And I was teaching a group of women that were very, all of them were behind the scenes, but very high powered in what they did. And it was a class in Yiddishkeit at somebody's home and it was beautiful. The women were lovely. It was beautiful. And this woman where I taught was going away and she asked it could be in somebody else's house. So we went to this woman's house and I taught the class. All the people came and, you know, each time I taught, I had more confidence. 
even when I started to teach with from women, which I thought I would be uncomfortable. And each time I taught, because everybody is just open to learning. Nobody's like looking, did you say it right? Or, you know, (laughs) what happened? So I would taught this class and then everybody left and I was kind of hanging out. Probably had a lot of kids still awake and I didn't want to go home until they were sleeping, you know, but I hung out with her for a while and we started talking and she said to me, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from New York. And she said, oh, I'm from New York also. And she said, well, you know, where in New York? And I said, Long Island. And she said, oh, yeah, I'm from Long Island. And then we go back and forth and back and forth. And then she says, no, what town are you from? And I said, I, I was from the five towns. And she says, I was from the five towns. And then she said, you know, where'd you go to high school? Okay. Then she said, where did you go to elementary school? And when she said, I went to that school, I just went. Then she said to me, did you used to have red hair? Mm. because I was wearing a scarf covering my hair. And I said to her, like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And she was one of my closest friends my whole entire childhood. When I went home and found my yearbook and I saw her name next to her picture, I never knew she would grow up to be this, like, gorgeous, you know, whatever. And for me, that was so powerful. And she was still friends with every friend that we grew up with because she lived in New York most of the time. She lived in a few places. And so I asked her to start lighting Shabbos candles. I mean, that's my one favorite thing to ask of if it, I would ask people to do anything. And so she said she would, and she was lighting Shabbos candles and she had the blessing written out and she was going to New York for something for work. And she told me after she was having dinner with one of our old friends that we Mm. grew up with. And they were in her hotel and she said, oh my gosh, it's almost Shabbos. I forgot to get Shabbos candles. You know, I forgot to get candles. I like candles. So they went over to the desk and the desk had some kind of candles and they went up to the room. And this woman, Pamela, my friend said to this other woman, oh no, I don't have the blessing with me. I don't know what to say. And this other woman said, I haven't said the blessing in like 25 years, but I remember what it is. And she told me that they said the blessing together and they both started crying and like, like they fell in each other's arms, you know, hugging and they were crying. And that story for me was just like a personal message from Hashem saying, you know, like, keep going, you know, like Mm. this, I mean, it can be that beautiful. It could be something real and significant. So when I say Hashgako Pratis stories, that's what I mean. I mean something on a level of depth, not just a nice story. At our house for Shabbos, for the Shabbos meals, I mean, now I do the teaching and I do the speaking and the storytelling. But when my husband was alive, mostly he taught and I would tell stories at the table. And that is exactly what everybody remembered. I know a lot of people I know, know I'm, I wrote a book and everybody wants to know, is it your stories? And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> That'll be the, maybe the next one. You know, we want your stories. Forget your life. <laughs> <laughs> not your life story, your other stories. <laughs> right, right. For me, it's very significant. It's just, it's something like I feel that they're living. The experiences are living. And the details, you know, the details are just incredible, you know, to get so many pieces to fit together. To lead each person to that moment. Yeah. I mean, they're just like, they're mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell us more. Tell us more of your stories. We don't want to wait for the book. <laughs> we want well, them now. <laughs> so I'll tell you a story that... My son, Mesh, he has a Chabad in Brookline, Massachusetts, he and his wife, Schiffer, and they live near six major hospitals. And they actually now have a hospitality center for hospitals, but they're often called from people out of town to go to the hospitals. So we got a call, it was right before, a week before Pesach from a, a rabbi in Florida saying that there's a couple, that there are baby is three days old. The baby is severely ill. He has to be operated on. The air lifted him. Could Mesh go in and pray with his family? So he says, yes. He said, and then he starts to list all the things he had to do you know, right before Pesach. But he said, yes. He goes to the hospital. 
He goes into the room. They tell him that the baby is having a surgery the next day. There's very small percentage. I think it was a 38%, whatever that means, you know, that helped make it. So Mesh said some psalms with them. He prayed with them. He gave them whatever, and he left. And he got a call the next day that miraculously the surgery was successful. Then he got a call the day Erev Pesach saying something happened. They have to operate again. Could he come over and pray with them? Erev Pesach. He said he ran over there. You know, he's going to run in and out, but the surgery was delayed and he couldn't leave them alone. And he sat with them. So he said to them, like the woman, how did you get involved with the Chabad rabbi? How did you get involved with Yiddishkeit? And she told him that she was raised, I think, in Venezuela. And when they were 16, her family moved somewhere outside of Chicago with her grandmother. And she finished high school there. And at the end of high school, before she went into college, her grandmother was very ill. And her grandmother said, I want to tell you that we're Jewish, that I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, your mother's Jewish, that she grew up in a Christian village in South America. So it didn't really mean anything to her, you know, okay. So she goes to college and she sees, she started to think, well, what is this Jewish thing? And she goes, it's a very long story, but I'll shorten it. She goes to different places. They reject her because they ask her if she's Jewish. And she says, no, but my grandmother is Jewish. So finally she gets to Chabad, you know, are you Jewish? No, my grandmother was Jewish. Great. Come on in. And she gets involved. And she said she still had a lot of questions about Christianity. You know, she was raised in that. And she went on birthright. And she said on birthright, she went to Israel. And after she extended her ticket and she had fallen in love with Sfat, and she went to Sfat. And she told my son that in Sfat, she met a rabbi who she stayed for three weeks and who answered every question she had and who changed her life. So my son Mesh says to her, what month were you there? You know, was it winter or summer? You know, what month were you there? And she says it was in the summer. And he said, do you remember the name of the rabbi? And she said, no, I don't know his name, but they call him Schwartzy. Oh. And Mesh said, that was my father. And she told Mesh for three weeks, she sat at a scent. She has all the notes Every single note she took from all the classes they learned together, asking him question after question and learning, and, and it changed her life. And it's like, how many pieces? Mesh had to be the rabbi, he had to be agreeable to go, Arab Pesa. I mean, there's so many pieces. And then when he was, I think, six months old, he was able to have a bris, and they flew Mesh in to Florida to be the sandak for the baby. So this just happened a year ago, this story. Wow. So you have to be able not to miss it, not to think, oh, that's interesting. It's a coincidence. <laughs> there are hundreds of stories like this on every level, really on every single level. What do you think the key is to not missing it? Hmm, that's a very good question. Probably you have to want to see it. Like I always want more. If there's a great person giving over these beautiful stories. I want more. I want more, you know, I want more time in Israel. Then I want more time with my new grandchildren. Then I want, more, you know, so I want more depth in the stories, you know, because I'll tell you a story that happened two weeks ago. So my mm -hmm. friend, Rachi Stillman, who just passed away, we were having dinner a few days before. We were at another friend's house. We were having dinner and she told us that she was driving home. She was the boys' guidance counselor at the Cheder. And then she taught high school and she's very involved with everybody. And she lived in the valley and there's always a lot of traffic when school is out. So she's always trying a new route. So she said she went down the street. It's near me. It's called Westwood Boulevard, which she hadn't been on in 20 years. And she stopped at a red light behind another car and a car rammed into her in the back and like basically destroyed her car, rammed into her. She already had a bad back. So she gets out of the car. And anyway, to make all the details short, finally they exchange things. 
and it's a man who's 40 years old. He gets out of the car. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was on my phone. I didn't see you any call. I'm so sorry. I'm so, that's all. She said, okay, we're going to just stay calm about this. So when they finished exchanging things, she says, listen, I just want to tell you, I'm a rabbi's wife and I'm not going to take you to the cleaners. You know, I just need my car fixed. I might need a few treatments for my back, but I'm not, you know, he says, a rabbi's wife, what's your name? So she said, my name is Rachel Stillman. He said, do you have a Hebrew name? So she says, yes, my name is Rachi. And he says, was your husband, Yerachmiel Stillman? This guy who rams into her on a street she hasn't been in 20 years. Is your guy, your, is, was your husband, Yerachmiel Stillman? She says, yes, he was. He said, well, I want to tell you that 20 years ago, I went to the Chabad house and I met your husband, Yerachmiel Stillman, and he put tefillin on me for the first time in my life. And he studied with me. I used to go a few times a week and he would study with me. And then there was really nobody that went there. So I decided to go somewhere else. And he went to another rabbi in Los Angeles at a university at USC. And he said he became observant for 10 years. He said he wasn't now, but that had changed his life. That story is, it didn't just happen. You know, it's so significant and especially now, but it was such a significant story that how these people for some reason had to meet. And this is how this happened. And they were supposed to go out for coffee and it never happened, you know, reconnect him to his Judaism. So some of us are going to do that. But what are the chances? You know, that's what I feel when I hear every story. You know, I I enjoy them. And I just feel it's part of Hasidus. I feel it's an integral part of Hasidus. What would you say to someone who struggles to allow themselves to believe that this is Hashem's guidance and not just like a random coincidence that holds no particular meaning or direction for them personally? I try not to tell anybody anything of that nature. (laughs) I want your advice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I think it's a very hard thing when things aren't going well. Mm. I mean, I am a support for many young women and I hear things that are very difficult and it's just very difficult to say, oh, I know something better. It's really a Shkaka protest. I really don't do that. I think it's very, very difficult to see it. Of course, when something is great, you see definitely the Shkaka protest. Yeah. Like I had a granddaughter that just got married And my daughter-in-law had mentioned it to somebody who mentioned it to my, you know, like all, and if she hadn't heard the name before, maybe she wouldn't have said yet, you know, like all of these things, you know, so that's for the good. So when it's for the good, you could say, wow, don't you love the Hashkacha Pratis of it all? Mm -hmm. But when it's something difficult, if they ask the question, then I would answer the question, but nobody asks that question when things are difficult. Like what could be the Hishkaku practice of this situation? I'm thinking more in terms of neutral circumstances where- Oh, neutral? Yeah, where we want to be open to the idea that Hashem is sending us direction. What? I think the only way is by learning Hasidus. I really do. I just think it's, you know, like the first day that I was in Minnesota with Rabbi Freeman learning Tanya- my three other friends, we had all gone. We had all been to the Rebbe and that was it. We're going to, we're going to study Hasidus. And we were all in Minnesota and we listened to that first Tanya class for 20 minutes and all of us just looked at each other. I felt like I had been wearing glasses and my glasses were smudged and now somebody super cleaned them so they were sparkling. Mm. And that's the way we all felt. And I think that the learning of Cositas opens you up to that. I think that's beautiful and very true. And I would love to hear from you, just knowing your spiritual background and how much of a seeker you were, what was your process of integrating this intense spiritual seeking to a really practical level of Yiddishkeit? How did you turn that corner and how did you integrate those two worlds? Okay, so I have to say that 
I wasn't conscious of it, but much later on I was, about how difficult it was to integrate the spirituality into one's Jewish life when one is very busy raising a family, raising a lot mm. of young kids, you know, not having time for many things. But I, there was one thing I did do to keep myself deeply connected. There was one Hasidus class I went to a week. It was in a shul. I never missed it for anything, for anything. If my you know, aunt was flying in, my husband had to pick her up. If a kid had to go to the doctor, I didn't care. You know, you, somebody will take them. I never missed a class. I never, it was one hour a week of Hasidus. It was a Maimoram class and it kept me totally connected for the amount of spirituality I could absorb at that time. And I always recommend it. I mean, that is the one thing I do recommend because it's very hard. It's very hard to manage so many things. Most women are working and they have a family and they want to learn or they want to grow, but it's very, very difficult time-wise. But there does come a certain time when your kids or the needs of a community or the things can shift. Like there were years, you know, in the beginning of the Chabad house, everybody did everything. You know, there was no workers. Like every Chabad house today has workers. I mean, not just Jewish workers, but not Jewish workers Cleaning to do stuff. the healing and the sweeping. And the, we never had that for years and years. So if we we're doing a big meal at Chabad, whatever, whoever could peel potatoes, peel potatoes. You could be the rabbi teaching the highest level of Hasidus that afternoon, but your hand was in everything. You know, you were mm. totally involved. So I think that, I don't know, you're just in touch in a different way. We all grew together. I used to be very shy also. When I was younger, I was extremely shy. So a person has an ability to change. And I mean, I have millions of very incidents that happened. I lived in many countries in the world. I did a lot of traveling. I still have done traveling in the last many years. And so you meet people everywhere. I was just walking around the lake after dropping my kids off at preschool, Nashville is physically beautiful and there's a lake nearby. So I decided to do my morning walk around the lake. And then there was a woman and she was dressed all in purple and she had purple hair. And I love people that have purple hair, you know. And so we ended up walking together for a period of time and talking and she was traveling from out of state. And it was just to be open to experiences, just, you know, nothing happened. There was, she wasn't my long lost sister, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying to make yourself just open to experiences because mm. you never know where they're going to drop in. Yeah. That's such a good point that if you're yeah. closed to life, then you'll never be able to see the hand of God. But if you're just open to people, to experiences, to the world around you, then yeah, that helps. I could share another story if you want. Sure. So I have a son and we were in Israel. This is quite a while ago. He's now 34. So maybe he was 18 at the time, something like that. Maybe a little older, maybe in his early 20s. He had been studying in Israel. And after Shabbos, my husband and I were in Jerusalem. And after Shabbos, he comes back and he tells us that he lost his backpack in his backpack were his Rolls Royce two pair of tefillin. <laughs> and he had somebody needed help cooking. Ugh. Miriam Rhodes and about Ian. She called Beryl and he jumped in a taxi and he forgot to jump out of the taxi with uh, his backpack. So I wasn't very happy. <laughs> and they're expensive. They're, yes. And holy. That's why I call them Rolls Royce tefillin. <laughs> Because <laughs> you could get Honda to fill in, which the next <laughs> pair were. And I hired somebody because he was leaving the country to call every taxi company. Would you know that there was like 67 different taxi companies in Jerusalem? Nobody found the to fill in. And I was still upset. And my son was going to Argentina that year to school. And my husband, we had to get him to fill in. So I, we had Honda to fill in written for him <laughs> this time, you know. And they weren't ready yet. So he went to school. He was borrowing from 
kids in the yeshiva and four months pass and we get a telephone call from my son-in-law who lives in Israel. Mm. And he says, I think we found barrels to fill in. I go, what? (laughs) And what happened is I have a nephew married to my niece who lives in Kafar Chabad, who basically hardly speaks English. So he's fluent in Hebrew. And he was on their news site, like the COL Live in Brooklyn. It was something in COL Live in Hebrew that he never goes on. Never. But he was not feeling well. He was home and he went on that site. Like, what are the chances? And he sees to fill in Dove Bear Schwartz, found to fill in Dove Bear Schwartz, 770 on the bag. So he calls my son-in-law and he says, by any chance, to barrel loses to fill in. <laughs> and he says, yes. So he gives him the number and he calls and it's a Chabad rabbi. And the Chabad rabbi tells him the following story. He said, there was a man who came home one day to his Moshav and his wife wasn't home. And he called her and she didn't answer the phone. And it was nine o'clock and it was 10 o'clock. It was 11 o'clock. It was 12 o'clock. It was one o'clock in the morning. And now he's frantic because in Israel, there is reason to worry about people, tragically. So she finally comes home and he's, where were you? And she said she was at a Chabad women's for bringing. A neighbor took her to, and it was so fabulous that she forgot the time. She didn't come home. And he was so angry from worry that he cursed the teacher of the class and he cursed the class and he cursed the Rebbe. So this person who's giving us back the tefillin said, so this man, some time passed. Anyway, he was not feeling well. He got sick. He was getting sicker and sicker. And he was really quite concerned because they couldn't really find what was wrong with him. And he decided that he needed to do tshuva and he needed to do tshuva for cursing the Rebbe. You know, he felt energetically was not, okay. And he was doing tshuva. He started to go to Yerushalayim to, I think it's called Beis Menachem, to Davin. He belonged to a Sephardic menu, but he would go there. He was asking forgiveness. And it was Erev Yom Kippur. And he was going to shul and he was standing outside his shul. And he was praying to God for forgiveness for what he said. He prayed to God to show him a sign. And then he said, and show me a Chabad sign. Show me that the Rebbe forgives me. He's standing in front of his shul. An Arab walks by, sticks this tefillin bag in his arms and says, this was taken from your people. Please return them and walks away. And those were my son's tefillin. Mm. Four months after he lost them. You know, like the pieces of the story. Yeah. You know, and that my nephew, that only day he went on that site and he saw this from this Chabad rat. Oh, and so when this man got the tefillin, he knew one Chabadnik and it was this rabbi and he called him and he said, listen, I know these are Chabad. I see 770, try to find the owner. So we sold the Honda tefillin. <laughs> <laughs> Now you got the good stuff back. <laughs> he still has the good stuff and he hasn't lost it again. So. <laughs> <laughs> he learned his lesson. You began by saying that people always ask you, like, how, where do you get all these stories from? And you say, every single one of you has these stories happening in your life. You're just not paying attention. But all the stories that you mentioned seem to be like out of a storybook, like too many details came yeah. together. It was too dramatic. Is that happening in every person's life? Why am I not seeing it? I actually think it can be. I just think people don't, they don't ask questions and they don't put it together. Like, sure, why not? Mm. Why, why shouldn't it to fill and fall out of the sky four months later? Oh, I see what you're saying. I think people just don't, you know, oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. They don't wonder at the magnificence of the story. They might see what's happening, but they don't take it to the next level. Oh, okay. It's what I think. It's right back to what you said before, that it's about being open to life, like inquiring with the person who received the yeah. twillin about the story behind it and just who he is and connecting with yeah. him. 
Yeah. I wanted to know every detail. That's great. So give us all the advice. Can you end off just with some life advice? If it could be about well, your journey, chassidus, hashkach pratis, anything, give us some pearls. This is advice I give to my daughters and people I care about. Eat well, get a lot of exercise, have time to yourself, which is very, very hard. Study something every week, you know, if you can't study something every day and go to retreats. I think retreats are extraordinary and be creative. Do things that will make you feel human and holy. (laughs) Yeah, really. That's my advice. Don't be afraid of things to try new things. Like when I walk, I always try to change where I'm walking, how I'm walking, direction I'm walking in, you know. I mean, it could be I'm making it up, but I do feel that it just is good for your brain. I stand on my head every day. Really? I highly recommend that. What are the benefits? I'll let you know if I live a long life. (laughs) (laughs) I was guaranteed it's a long life, clear thinking, your brain's still working, but I'll let you know. There's no way to know. (laughs) I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And for people, if they can, to do what they love. And if you're not doing what you love, find a way to incorporate some of it and get great support. I believe in women having a lot of support. I had a home decorator once. I mean, she wasn't my home decorator, but she was a good friend and she did home decorating for people. And she was helping me do something. And I said, oh, Marjorie, thank you so much. I could never have done it alone. And she said to me, no one could do things alone. Like you make a mistake. You thought you should be able to do all of this alone. And you couldn't because mm. you can't. And I think that's very important. Nice. And to take care of yourself. Yeah. Amen. I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing your stories and a little bit about your life. It was beautiful. Elokai Zakinina Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Mm